Welcome to the Hunter Farmer Artisan Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Garrett. Today in the studio, I have Jillian Garrett, who is a little disappointed because we're not going on a bear hunt today. Why is that? We are dealing with some horrendous wildfire smoke right now. There are some huge fires up north of us in Canada, and the wind's blowing smoke down from that. Plus, we just had some new fires develop to the west, east, and south of us, so we're kind of boxed in by smoke. So rather than be disappointed in that and be mopey or try to spend all day in military-grade gas masks in order to preserve our lungs... We decided we'd hang out in here and tell you the story of Chaco the Bear, which is the Boone and Crockett bear that I harvested in 2020. It's the first bear that I harvested. And it's a really interesting story that I think is worth sharing here because it encompasses a lot of the reasons people get into hunting, some of the insights you get out of hunting, and While I'm going to spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about getting involved, getting in the fight, it's important to remember what we're fighting for. So I hope you stick around. It's going to be a fun ride. Yeah. And, you know, we like to say that the story of Chaco is Ryan's story, but the journey to get to Chaco is a joint story that I'm actually really excited to tell with you today. I'm looking forward to it. The story goes a little long. I'm just going to warn listeners right now that my normal format, I'm trying to keep the episodes very, very short, but the story of Chaco takes some time to get through because it touches on some pretty serious elements. And so this episode's going to take however long it takes. Let's start just briefly saying that Neither Jillian nor myself really grew up hunting. I had some exposure to it as far as through my uncles, but I didn't get a chance to actually go. Had exposure to fishing, which I definitely did. You had nothing to that extent. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. I was a city girl. Big time. When we got married, one of the things that we really got into was the idea of knowing where our food came from and knowing how to kind of ethically source that food. And that began us on this path that took us into farming, gardening, raising our own livestock, making milk, being as self-sufficient as we could on a five-acre property, and eventually into hunting a little bit. I got into the hunting element a little bit before you did, primarily because we wanted a way of obtaining meat that wasn't going to damage the land so much we really didn't have the space you can talk about no um so originally we did try to raise our own livestock to provide ourselves with meat but we didn't have the space to really create an annual supply of protein for ourselves we farmed five acres um And we made a lot of mistakes kind of degrading the land in the beginning because we were trying to do too much with too small a footprint and we were new and we didn't always know what we were doing. And then we spent a lot of time after that doing our best to repair the land, to farm more wisely. But it was that desire to ethically and sustainably source our protein, to not have to buy it from the grocery store that led us uh, first Ryan and then eventually myself into hunting. And one of the things that I really remember on this journey before, I think honestly this happened before either of us really got into hunting, was we had some kids come up to our fence at our farm in Oregon, and they pointed to our chickens, and they said, what are those things? They had never seen a real live chicken 
that wasn't conveniently plastic wrapped from the grocery store. Or already battered and fried at McDonald's. And that experience stuck with me. I mean, it's what, almost 20 years later at this point or something insane. And I still, that right there is a driving force for me on why I am so passionate about not only knowing where my own food comes from, but educating people on where food comes from. And you hear a lot of arguments about the morality of hunting. Well, as a farmer and as a hunter, I have to bring up the point. There is no free cost of food, whether it's meat, whether it's vegetables, something had to die or be displaced to get that food on your plate. There's always an impact to what you're doing. It's kind of like the good place of unintended consequences. And one of the things that we've really made an effort to do and to show is what those consequences are. How does your food get to you? How does that damage occur? And now that you know what that is, how can you be a more conscientious and less wasteful eater? Because the point isn't to tell people you all need to hunt or you all need to farm. We simply want to educate people about the hidden costs of eating so that you, the consumer, can make more informed choices that benefit the land and the animals residing on it. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of is why we we started that delve into hunting. And ironically, the first thing I attempted to hunt was a bear, primarily because when I got into it, that was the only thing that was open. I had a buddy who was a Marine who had permission to hunt on a property that was dealing with some predator issues. And we went and we tried to get, it was either going to be a bear or a cat or coyotes and managed to get none of those things. But I loved the entire experience. It was really cool. And ended up eventually, some years later, harvesting my first turkey. And it was delicious. It was a super exciting moment in my life. And to this day, I think turkey's my favorite thing to hunt by far. To eat and just to pursue. To Well, squirrel's my favorite to eat by Ooh, far. That's that's tough, man. I don't know if I could choose. You don't think you could choose? <laughs> Can they, I have one of each? They all have different things. Yeah, if, if turkeys tasted like squirrels, I don't think I'd be able to get anything else done. I'd be just You haven't useless. lived until you've had one of Chef Ryan's squirrel chimichangas. Yeah, those are super good. I was trying really hard to get a bear for about five years, but I can't say that I really put the dedication and effort into it until we had an incident on the farm. And this is what I mean when I say that we get into some topics here that get a little on the dark side. So I have to mention that what I'm going to talk about now is a livestock conflict incident that we had with a bear. And I have to mention the fact that both Jillian and myself have PTSD from it that we've sought. Pretty severe, for. yeah. Yeah, certainly in my case, it was it was rated as severe. For that reason, what I'm not going to do, what we're not going to do, is give you a point-by-point analysis of what all happened that night. And a big portion of that is because it'd be really difficult to do so. The way my therapist described PTSD memories is it's like a bunch of stuff that you shove in a really, really full closet. And if you opened that closet and tried to peer inside, you really wouldn't be able to see what's in the back. It's very hard to actually 
purposefully recall details. But you bump things just right, and it all comes crashing out. And that is an excellent description because the right triggers will put you right back in those moments. Over time, I've realized ways that I can talk about it that don't mess me up. <laughs> I know when I wrote my article about it um, for Bear Hunting Magazine that it took me months to be able to write. I, I got the first few sentences and I would just start crying uncontrollably because it was so traumatic to even attempt to relive that experience in writing. Yeah. You know, actually finishing that article was one of the most difficult things I've had to do short of living through it. Yeah, definitely. It was it was quite a difficult experience. So, But it was an important one to share because there are so many elements to it that talk about, you know, how a hunting can still mean a love of the animal and a willingness to conserve the species the importance of mentorship. Yeah, there's there's so many elements that are tied to that that it, it's one of those things that we can't just shove that in a corner and pretend it never happened. It's it's it requires acknowledgement because it provided the impetus for kind of the beginning of your journey and for me to recommit how I went about mine. So, bullet points of that night is that we have a livestock conflict incident on a dark and foggy night where one of my animals, my favorite llama, was killed by a black bear. And it was a very freak event. The wildlife biologist that we talked to afterwards who examined the body, I did put that animal, the bear, down, and my llama, said that it was highly unusual, and the reason that that bear probably attacked my llama was due to the fact that it had a severe injury to its tongue, and that was preventing it from being able to eat properly. So it would have really attacked anything it come, came across just as a matter of de desperation. I mean, it was days from starving to death, really. Which kind of made the whole incident even worse, in a way. Yeah. It was such a senseless waste on so many levels. To find out all of those things after the fact was just really difficult. And for me, the, the freak nature of the occurrence really didn't act as a consolation. It acted as something that was even more upsetting because it was like, why did it have to be me? And also, if this is what, this is my image of bears now. And it really bothered me because what I wanted was to know that there were healthy bears out there. I wanted to know what it was like when a bear was just doing bear things. And more importantly than that, I wanted to put a healthy bear in between myself and that night. And I, I did want to point out the importance of the fact that we were attempting to get you out and bear hunting for five years before, before, that before that night occurred. And it was really difficult and honestly so deeply upsetting that so many people, including people who knew us really well, said, oh, you're just seeking vengeance on bears for that. And 
that's why I really want to make the point that no, Ryan had been bear hunting for five years from that point. I had been going out on a lot of these hunts with him and it wasn't about a vengeance. You just said it was about trying to overcome the traumas of that night by just putting yourself in a situation where you were in close quarters with a normal bear being a bear, kind of like confronting that nightmare and confronting that demon in a way that also aligned your desire to know where your food came from, to, you know, feed your family, put food on the table. I had a newly rekindled interest in making sure that I got a bear based on those things. And you suddenly had an interest from that night in hunting yourself primarily because you wanted to be familiar with how to use a firearm. Yeah, the feeling of helplessness that night because I grew up, as I said before, I was a city girl. I was actually a vegetarian and a vegan at one point. Super anti-gun. Even in the early years of our marriage, you were not allowed to have any guns. It would have been a huge fight. Over time with the farm, I had to change that. I'm sorry, you can't be a farmer without some sort of firearm to help with, you know, sick animals to humanely put down, pest control. It's just really a necessary part of farming. But I myself never had the gumption or the desire to learn how to handle a firearm. And that night left me feeling so helpless that I couldn't protect myself. I couldn't protect my family. And I swore never again to have that same sense of helplessness. And Ryan's sense of post-traumatic stress comes, the trigger is dark and foggy nights. Mine was always the sound of gunfire after that night. And one of the ways that I decided I was going to try and overcome it was that same kind of desire to confront the monster is I just decided to dive headfirst into learning how to use a firearm. Yeah, and you became a really pragmatic shot. Which is funny because that's so not my personality. (laughs) No, you really, you really take your time and you get you get it done right. I mean, when you pull the trigger, that bullet goes where it should go. When I pull the trigger, the animal just falls down. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. It just falls down. It just falls down. That's that's definitely been your track record so far. With those things happening, I still had the problem that I'd been at this for five years, and all I had been able to harvest was a turkey. I don't even know if I had gotten a deer yet. No. I hadn't I gotten my deer yet. Yeah. Really, all I had gotten was turkeys and i knew that i probably was going to keep floundering if i didn't go seek help of some sort so that's what i did i did that that newbie hunter thing that people do in the modern era where you reach out on social media and for the most part people don't give you much no and i you did also read a lot of books on the subject and i will say Books are great. There's some awesome literature out there, but it doesn't equate to boots on the ground experience. But if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you're missing and you don't have a mentor to guide you, you're kind of just bumbling around in the woods, trial and error, hoping you're successful. There's a huge wall of knowledge that you don't realize you need when you get into hunting. It's amazing how even just taking a new hunter out for a day can help give you that knowledge. And I can say that because somebody that reached out to me, his name was Lance, he actually took the time to take me out 
to some bear spots and give me a couple of bear spots and even gave me a hunt plan for one of his bear spots. And he hadn't been there in a long time. He was retired and he mostly just hunted elk. And one of his conditions was that if he got an elk down that year, cause his knees are a little older and he had like just had surgery. Um, if he got an elk down that I was going to pack out and I was super excited to help him do that. So I was kind of a little bit bummed when he didn't get to get one down that year. But he took the time to take me out and show me, here's what the vegetation looks like. Here's what bear sign looks like. Here's what it looks like when you're in kind of a periphery area for bears. Here's how you handle this area for wind. Just really took the time to tell me all the stupid stuff that I couldn't think of. Well, and and that really shows the importance of mentorship. So many times I see or have experienced hunters not wanting to help because they're afraid of giving away, quote unquote, their hunting spot. And your experiences with Lance were a good example that you can give someone a point on a GPS. That doesn't mean they're going to be successful getting an animal out of there because The landscape had changed dramatically from when Lance was hunting bears there, and the bears were not in the same spot that he remembered them. And also, you went back the year after you harvested Chaco, and the creek had dried up, and the bears were elsewhere. So not mentoring someone because you don't want them to steal your hunting spot is just an awful excuse. Stop Hoarding information, we should be sharing experiences. You know, the hunting community is such a small minority nationally anyway. We need to bring in those new hunters and we need, especially the adult onset hunters like you and I, you know, let's let's welcome them with open arms and help them be successful because someone who is shown how to hunt is welcomed in the community. They're going to develop a love of the animals that they go after and a love of conservation, and they're going to be a hunting ally, and we need that. Yeah, the the more of those people we can build, the better. And I put that in terms of craft. I thought it was really, really interesting to see from a hobby side, you make hats. That's something you do for fun. And I make furniture by hand not using any power tools i mean not that i don't love my bandsaw and my planer they're awesome but i know how to make entire pieces of furniture without slaying a single electron that's kind of a cool thing in the woodworking community we're discovering new techniques that we have lost and we're sharing those things because there's this attitude of making sure that everybody knows whereas in the millinery community you guys are losing techniques constantly because nobody wants to share anything and they're all dying off and i think that we could allow hunting to die with us by not sharing it or we can make it more vibrant by sharing that knowledge as much as possible and that's not to say that you can't have some secret hunting spots. But no, the, the importance of mentorship is is really great. I mean, we took we took somebody out this year. Yeah, to actually a hunting spot that we have tried to hunt for several years now. Um, unsuccessfully, just because it's an area where the wind can be super swirly. But There's definitely bears there. There's, there's definitely, definitely cats there. Yeah, there's definitely bears. But we took this new hunter out. Um, 
He was a new hunter. He was a aspiring bear hunter. And we did our best to show him the ropes. And it was that whole, yes, this is my hunting spot, but I want to share it with someone, you know? And if he managed to get a bear out of there, I would be so excited for I'd him. I'd help him back out. And then I'd sure. be like, okay, so how did you find this bear? <laughs> how, what was the window in that? Yeah. Hey, because, <laughs> because that's the other thing is the knowledge piece of it's a two-way street. I know that Lance was very surprised where we got Chaco. He didn't expect me to get a bear where I did. He expect me expected us to get a bear in a different part of that area. So keep that in mind that you might actually learn something you didn't know because you're bringing in a fresh set of eyes. So that's my little PSA on mentorship and why it's not necessarily burning a spot. But let's go to the actual hunt itself a little bit. And for that, we need to talk a little bit about spring scouting and everything that went into that and for that we need to talk about this area so i'm going to call the area salty gulch just so i don't put too many people in that spot to describe salty gulch i would say that if you took like a t-rex footprint on the landscape and maybe that T-Rex had some messed up toes or maybe some extra toes, but the idea is a deep footprint with a creek in the middle of that footprint, and your access point is also in the middle of that footprint, and each of those toes represents a draw and a set of ridgeline systems in between them. That's this area, which is a great area to go hunting if you're just getting used to getting off trail being able to feel comfortable just kind of wandering around without any sort of guides because as long as you turn around and go downhill again, you're going to end up at your truck. Like, everything leads back to this one point, which is really cool. One of those systems goes up to kind of a higher point where there's some openings where you can glass across into another open face of the drainage system's and you can also glass into some mixed oak. And some of the draws, if you try to go down them, are manzanita hellholes. I mean, you will lose gear going. Still wish I could find that water bottle. <laughs> it's just, it's gone. You're never getting that back. I hate littering. It was unintentional, though. I know. But, I mean, it happens. And, and we do make up for that because every time we go out, we're always yeah, picking we're always up trash. Trying so. to pick up trash and clean up. But the point is that this is an area where you have lots of different types of habitat. You have some, that classic open alpine, get up high in glass kind of hunting, which is rare in southern Oregon. That's, that's not what you do. This is the Applegate hunting unit, by the way. Some of the densest black bear populations in the country. Yep. Uh, I think for many, many, many years, it's been the highest harvest harvest unit of black bears in the country so if you're going to go hunt black bears that's not a bad place to do it but the advice that you read in every single book is not actually going to be all that helpful you hear two pieces of advice what are they get up high on glass and find the food find the bears which if i hear parroted at me one more time i may scream because while they can be accurate that is one small piece of a very complex story right big puzzle. That is not an, a good metric there because in that part of Southern Oregon, there's food. 
everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> There's so much food. You have oak that are dropping acorns like crazy, and it's full of oaks. White oak, black oak, red oak. I mean, every kind of oak you can think of. Animals do prefer white oaks, by the way. Blackberries. Blackberries that have become invasive that are a real problem, but the animals, of course, make use of those. You have wild thimbleberries, strawberries, just any anything you can think of. There's just so much food that it's not a limiting factor, which is an important thing. As we started putting these pieces together, trying to figure out where bears were. And by the way, I could never find bears in Salty Gulch where Lance told me to, which was the high region. But as we were going around and looking at things, there's this abandoned logging road that's really close to where you would park your truck. Jillian saw that and just was like, hey, let's take a walk down this. And I'm, I'm glad you did because it's one of my favorite places in the world. Go ahead and give a description of that since you discovered it. So it was actually an old abandoned logging road right next to the parking lot. So basically you would pull into this dirt patch of a parking lot with your truck and you could either go straight and kind of go to where it seemed like a lot of the sows with cubs hung out. You could go to the left and kind of go up the mountain past where the wild turkeys always gobbled at me and glass for elk. Or you could go to the right and do this skid road. And it was totally overgrown, super brushy. And it was always a little bit terrifying, especially for me to walk down because... I was still dealing with a lot of the post-traumatic stress fear of dark places and big scary bears and you're entering this waist-high grass, all of these small trees, you've got um, a creek kind of near you and you're walking down this on high alert just wondering when you're going to run into that 400-pound black bear or the mountain lions that were very numerous and frighteningly interested in you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely... One of the places that if you go in there, there is, I would say about 75% of the time, I would go in there, walk down that road, and on, then on my way back, I would have cat scat in my boot prints all the time. I mean, it just, it happened so frequently. Well, and that was one of the first times we learned that cougars chirp as one of the noises they make because we kept hearing those noises and I kept going what kind of weird bird is that what weird bird is that and come to find out that was one of the cougar vocalizations yep so the point being that that is a place where there is just a lot of predators it's very very thick with predators there's lots of bears there's lots of cougars but it's also really thick. If you can see more than 15 yards in this area, that's a pretty long viewpoint. So that should give you an idea of kind of the context of what you're trying to do. And also the winds can be here and there a little goofy. They were pretty steady on Predator Alley, though. That was one of the big appealing points of it. Yeah, they did They did stay consistent there, whereas in a lot of other places, they did not. In the spring, I tried multiple hunts and 
couldn't manage to do it. And probably about a week before the end of season, I was checking a trail cam. And I saw a picture of a bear on it. I was looking at the picture of the bear, and I actually happened to have a picture of myself caught on that same trail camera, and the bear and I were standing on the same point. I am a six-foot-tall dude with broad shoulders, and I had a bino harness on, and that bear's shoulder came up to the top of where my bino harness sits on my chest. When I saw that picture and I put together what that bear was, I was no longer interested in getting a bear. I was interested in getting that bear. And I knew for a fact that we had come across that particular bear's scat because it looks like a Nalgene bottle. I mean, it was just huge. So I recommitted, but obviously I found it so late on that spring season that he just ran out the clock. I never could. Well, and we still didn't have a good idea of his travel corridors or how animals were utilizing that landscape. And that came shortly thereafter on another seemingly failed attempt to scout for bears. Yep. So I'm trying to remember, I think we did, we did a bunch of days of pre-scouting. I know we did that where we just went out into the woods and looked for bears, you and I, and we started to get a better idea of what, where, this bear that I would later name Chaco liked to hang out. And by the way, Chaco really valued his privacy. So I had trail cams and they have the type of trail cam that I use has basically a magnetic ball mount on it. So you can mount it to the tree and then you can angle the camera the way you want to angle it, which is really nice. I love that feature. It's too bad they don't make those anymore. Chaco would come along and knock them down. It was one time where it was 15 minutes after you and Lance left. We have a picture of Chaco walking up. We have his face and then he knocks it down and we have about 15 pictures of his armpit as he's standing over the camera. <laughs> yep. Or he would knock it completely off the ball mountain. I'd have to go find it in the brush or something like that. He just, he was, he, I had to really start mounting those things high so that I could look down if I wanted to get a picture of him. But you always describe bear habitat and I think this is really accurate as kind of a bullseye. So if you think about a bullseye on those outer edges, you tend to have the sow with cub habitat because they're not going to want to be near those boars that are very likely to kill those cubs to bring the sow back into estrus. And then as you find better and better habitat towards the center, you're going to find those big, mature, you know, king of the hill boars. Yeah, and the hill in that particular case is the center of the bullseye. And what I mean by that is think about it like real estate. The best real estate is the real estate that's close to everything that people need and want. You know, it's got the best view. It's got proximity to where you can go work and make a decent amount of money. It's got proximity to the nicest stores, the nicest restaurants. Bears are the same way. What a bear is looking for is they're looking for food, water, cover, and easy travel between those things. 
Like it would be shocking to most people to realize how close that was to the parking lot of this area. Yeah, very, very close. The The prime spot was maybe three quarters of a mile from where you would park your truck. It well, was... and that's actually how we, how, well, I should say how you finally put the pieces together is it was one of those failed scouting trips where we were both just so disgusted not being able to put these puzzle pieces together. The season had started at this point because we had a rifle for that. But I remember specifically it was an overcast day, the wind was blowing, the trees were kind of swaying, and we were just tired and a little blue and frustrated. And so we had the truck tailgate down, we decided to share a... a Just have a beer. (laughs) Yeah, for a consolation prize. And we're sitting there and our legs are dangling off the tailgate and we hear what is unmistakably the sound of a bear coming up the ravine below the parking lot. Yep. And there was this little bit of a Kentucky scramble of, well, do you think we could make a move on it? Am I sober? Yes, I'm sober. We've been sitting here for an hour just being annoyed. No, we can't really do that. And it didn't really work out. It just didn't pan out for me to do this. And one of the things I realized is this this ravine, which it's not that deep of a ravine. We're talking a creek that makes the bank drop by a good, I don't know, 10, 15 vertical feet. So not huge, but it's enough of a dip that it creates this nice little spot where bears can walk. Kind of like a super highway. Right next to you. And you would never, ever see them. And what I realized is that this happened in the evening. And what was so valuable to me is, oh my gosh, this is the one time a day, morning and evening, when the bears are moving against their nose in other words they've got the wind at their back and they don't really care about what's in front of them from a scent standpoint because you can't fool a bear's nose they're incredible when it comes to their olfaction and i thought oh my gosh this this is my my weak point i just need a way to see them moving through this creek and i can't tell you how many times I spooked a bear while we were trying to walk that creek line and just never saw it, either with you or with Grayson, that it just it never managed to go. Well, I had another scheduled hunt to go with my, my buddy, Grayson. And Grayson's a cool dude. We need to introduce him a little bit. He is, at the time, I believe he was 19 years old, bodybuilder just a super stocky guy and that's going to come into play later and you stayed home for the day i mean we were we were still running the farm and when you have a farm and you have animals you have responsibilities and occasionally that means that you don't one of you is going to be the sitter for the day yeah unfortunately it it tends to be me just because you're a more confident capable hunter (laughs) at least at that point it's kind of funny how it's really hard to find farm sitters all of our friends would farm sit once and then be conveniently busy the next time we asked. <laughs> they're really interested in it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just because there was so many responsibilities, someone needed to be there to walk the dog, to let the animals out, lock them back in at night, et cetera, et cetera. So I volunteered to stay home. Yep. So I go, we go out in the morning and Drayson and I decide to take just a really, really slow, slow, painfully slow 
walk up Predator Alley. You cannot move slowly enough when you are still hunting. We spent maybe two and a half hours walking a mile at first light. And we did run into Chaco. We could see him kind of through the trees-ish. It was so brushy. It's so brushy. It's so thick. But another bear showed up. And this bear probably weighed, I don't know, I would call it a nice 350-pound bear. Good good bear. Not But Chacos. not Chaco. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of got into a tussle right next to us. And one bear went one way. Other bear went the other way. And... I know at one point, Drayson said, well, should I lip squeak? You know, what should I do? And I was thinking about, I was looking at the brush line that's maybe a yard from me. And I'm thinking, if this bear decides to respond to that, it's going to be in our lap before we can do anything. Have a howdy-do moment there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I know I said I wanted to shake hands with a bear, but I didn't want to have it be that literal. So I, I said no, and... We had a little bit of a discussion about which bear we should follow when they went off. I wanted to go one way. Drayson wanted to go another way. I took Drayson's advice. He was wrong. (laughs) Sorry, Drayson. He knows he was wrong. We had a discussion about it. But we we ended up catching back up with the 350-pound bear. And I, I saw it. I had a shot on it. And I passed because, again, I was interested in Chaco. That's that's the bear I wanted. That's the bear I was going to walk out of there with. So I was like, all right, you know, we screwed that up. Let's go do something else for a little while. And I really, by do something else for a little while, what really needed to happen is I needed to go to a different part of the, the creek system and calm down. <laughs> I was so annoyed about that because we had seen the bear that I was looking for so and close. I never had a shot, never had what I want. And then we ended up falling the wrong bear and I got a shot on the wrong bear. I mean, it was just, it was very frustrating to me, although it was fun. And that is part of hunting. So we went up to a different section. I set up a collar in a really steep area where we know there are bears. We had an encounter a few weeks prior with a bear where I got a, within about six yards of a bear I couldn't see. That should tell you how thick it is. Also, I'd like to interject that Ryan walked right past the steaming pile of fresh bear scat, and I paused and went, um, you may want to take a look at this. Maybe look around a little. Yeah, you were right. That was that was definitely very fresh. Right about that time, the bush nine feet away started shaking as the bear was eating berries off of it. Yep. And I decided not to press that issue because I was very, I was very conscientious about the fact that I wanted a certain type of bear. I didn't want to just shoot anything, and for that I needed time to assess it. And if I, I'm sure I could have killed that bear, but I would have gotten close enough to that bear where I would have had to kill that bear, and that's not the way I wanted it. And I think that that's something that's really important to address. A lot of times you see when people are being selective about the animal that they're taking, you get that accusation of trophy hunting. Or if you were just a meat hunter, you would take whatever you came across first. No. Hunters can be selective in order to be 
better stewards of the resource that they're taking from. I wanted a mature boar because when it comes to bears, that is a good animal to go after from a conservation standpoint. Big mature bears don't contribute as much to the population, and in fact, they're likely to kill cubs in order to bring sows back into estrus. So taking those bigger mature bears might actually be helpful to a certain extent to the population. It's also a larger animal provides more usable meat for the freezer. More meat, more hide. There's nothing wrong with being selective for that, especially when you're going to be taking a life. I don't have a problem with saying, well, if I am going to take a life, I would like to maximize the usage of that. So when somebody accuses me of trophy hunting because I'm being selective or just trophy hunting in general, which kind of has this implication that I'm not taking the meat, it really gets under my skin because it's completely inaccurate. Anyway, I'm sitting on the top of the mountain thinking about the the bear that I missed, listening to a dying rabbit call, and I not going to lie, I totally took a nap. And we actually called in a bear, and Drayson couldn't see it was pretty far off, and it didn't want to deal with it. It was a pretty blonde bear, actually. But it, obviously, I didn't want that one either. But we had a snack. Drayson, by the way, forgot to pack any sort of real snacks. He was just kind of in like a, a hurry on his way out the door and brought dog treats. But you didn't know it was dog treats until you afterward had some. You know, they weren't that bad. Well, weren't they organic? Yeah, they were like really <laughs> nice, organic, the most expensive. Like th- this this must have been the the most spoiled dog on the planet sort of a scenario. But yeah, so Drayson and I sat on the top of the mountain and ate some dog treats, rehydrated. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We had identified on our way out of Predator Alley a very unique spot. There was a cut above the abandoned logging road. And when I say that, I mean to say that it's no longer classified as a motor vehicle road anymore because you've got those tank traps that are going to prevent you from being able to bring a motor vehicle in there. There was a cut that was about a 10-foot cliff over the top of the road. And if you were above that, you had this rare opportunity where you could see into the creek for a slice that gave you visibility for about 50 yards, which was highly unique in this area. It was a big spot, and the bears do travel through there. So my thinking was, well, it's around noon. Let's go down there, get into that spot, clean it up, make sure that we have what we need. We'll set up a call, but we're not going to do the call. We're just going to sit there for four hours doing absolutely nothing. It's like turkey hunting, but with bears. And then... In four hours, we're going we're gonna to call. That's what we're going to do today to get this bear. So we go down there. We get in, and we're, we're not really being super quiet because we figured everybody, I mean, it was a hot day. We figured everybody was going to be done not doing anything. Which I just want to interject is kind of funny because you'll hear a lot that bears, you know, the only time you can really hunt bears is early morning or right at dusk. But Hogwash. You and I have had probably 90% or more of our bear encounters around midday on some of the hottest days of the year. Yeah, that's that's absolute hogwash because bears got to be somewhere, right? They're well, and if they're, if they're comfortable and they have a mode of easy travel, they're going to be up and about all day. 
You know, if they're not being pressured, you can totally run into a bear on a 93 degree day broadside on a logging road at 3 p.m. Yep, absolutely. That happens all the time. It happened to us. <laughs> exactly. So we're going into this spot and I, I set up my call. So I had a little electronic caller, which is legal in Oregon. And I had a setup where we get into that little spot and and the electronic collar wasn't that far from us we're talking a handful of yards because we're just right above the road and we're getting everything set up i get my rifle in place i get drayson gets into his little spot i'm set up where i want to be and i'm kind of getting ready and i hear my collar go off the dying dying rat call I'm like oh crap and i i shut it off well and i think we should take a moment to talk about your your firearm setup real fast in relation to the next part of the story oh yeah so i run i run a 308 with a 16 inch barrel and it's got a muzzle brake on it it's very loud very 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 loud but i like it because it's very wieldy in the sort of thick stuff that i normally hunt and, and now a days nowadays i have it suppressed which is still very wieldy but now it doesn't destroy my hearing but you did not have that suppressor on this day no i did not have that suppressor at that time this is part of what um convinced me to go ahead and go through that paperwork process but I'm looking at the the fact that the collar just went off and I, I turned it off and I kind of chided myself for a second because I was annoyed about it. But like, whatever, I went back into getting my gear ready and I had my rifle on my pack and I was looking at that to make sure that I could lift it up and be where I wanted. I'm like, okay, cool. Everything looks good. No and hearing I, protection on yet. No hearing protection on or anything like that. And I look up, and there's a friggin' bear right there. Not just a bear, the bear. I'm like, oh, there's a bear. And Drayson, it happened so quick, Drayson started to be like, don't mess with me, sort of thing. Until he saw, yeah, there was a bear there. All, I mean, it really took us by surprise that this bear came in, came into the call so quickly, and... Something that is interesting about bears is how quiet they can be when they weigh 500 pounds. <laughs> I was rather surprised by that. But I, I'm i trying to get my stuff set up and Drayson, oh, hit the collar, hit the collar, because it had moved off a little bit. And I, I hit the collar and it turned around and it started coming directly towards me. And I'm sitting here staring at this bear through the scope of my rifle, seeing just the swagger of this thing. I mean, big bears just move differently than smaller bears. And I knew I was looking at the one that I wanted. And I'm sitting there staring at this bear, and I'm waiting for a broad, broadside shot. And I'm just watching this bear, and, and Drayson's like, shoot it in the head. Just shoot it in the head. I'm like, okay, but, you know, whatever. Um... And I'm looking at the bear, and it, it finally comes up 
onto the road, and it's about 12 yards from me. Very, very, very close. And I remember Drayson saying, do you not want it? (laughs) And I was so intent on doing what I was doing, he must have thought I took a lot of time, but I, I, my answer to do I not want it was to take my safety off on my rifle, <laughs> which has a very particular snick, at which point he realized that he wasn't going to get a chance for shooting this bear with the bow that he brought along. Well, and I, I love the little detail you tell in this story where, you know, Drayson didn't have hearing protection. You didn't have time to put your hearing protection on because the bear was right there. And so Drayson's trying to cover his ears and then thinking, well, maybe I should get my phone to film this. So he's reaching for his phone. No, I should cover my ears. Wait, do I want my phone? <laughs> do I want my phone? Do I want to protect my ear? And then he, he I think he looked at the brake on my rifle and realized what was more important. <laughs> and he, he, he plugged his ears. So he was quartering kind of towards me. And I really didn't, have a comfortable feel towards his his boiler room vitals heart and lungs and at this point i had done a lot of damage control shooting in the agricultural world on ground squirrels i can hit a ground squirrel in the head with an air rifle in high wind 80 yards away no problem and we have that squirrel mounted as taxidermy on our bedroom wall in celebration of your amazing shot. <laughs> yeah, that was that one was cool because that one was a non-line-of-sight shot. I actually couldn't see on him what I was shooting at, but I knew that I would arc around it based on my range finding. So yeah, you knew was, your trajectory so well. I at knew that exactly point. where it was going. So the point is, and I was very dialed in with that 308 as well. I knew exactly where that round was going and it was a super close shot and I say all those things because I don't advise other people to take headshots I'm not saying you shouldn't I'm just saying that I don't advise it because a chest shot offers so much more margin for error but if the situation presents itself where it makes sense to do that like it did in this case that's okay I knew exactly where my bullet was going to go, and it made sense in this particular instance. I had a better pathway to that bear's brain than I did its heart. So that's where I had him. I I planted around basically right in his eye socket. And the taxidermist later actually complimented you because it was such a perfect center of the bullseye shot through that eye. Yeah, I barely, I basically like chipped a little bit of the top of his eye socket. But... Took the bear down, and I knew that I had to take that shot right at that moment, too, because he was about to be, he was about to wind the collar, and I knew once he did that, he was going to go. So I only had that that slice of time to do it, but boom! And of course, I've got the the break on my 16-inch 308, so my, my hearing's dead. We had a little talk about that later. You get a pass because you brought home a bear, but... Right. I have never reacted the way I did getting an animal. I've had various... Every time you get a first animal, that's something about hunting that is really kind of interesting, is that the first of a species incites very different reactions. I know that for my turkey, there was this reaction of just, like, disbelief. Because... And I I think turkey hunting, that's, that's kind of common because it's always chaotic. My first 
squirrel that I killed, I cried like crazy. I absolutely love gray squirrels. They're my favorite thing. Oh, yeah. And he has a giant textbook, Squirrels of the World, too. Yeah, they're just, they're cool. And so, I mean, I, I cried over that squirrel, not just, not because I was upset about taking the life, although that's kind of like a mixture in that cocktail, but just because I think they're so beautiful. And I had spent so much time thinking about going on a squirrel hunt, especially in the area that I went squirrel hunting, that it just, it, it hit me emotionally like a freight train. And I was, it was so unexpected. Whereas with Chaco, my reaction was the most visceral excitement I have ever felt in my life. I lost my mind. <laughs> and I like I couldn't help but just screaming out, yes, like top of my lungs, like a moron. I mean, maybe partly because your hearing was compromised temporarily. So maybe you just couldn't hear yourself too. <laughs> no, I was just stupid excited. I mean, I definitely heard myself just fine. And Drayson, Drayson had to like bring me back down. He's like, you realize I have a tag too. And you could, you know, maybe shut up a little bit and give me a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, even though I knew what I saw, that that bear was down because it dropped right, right, sort of where, where it was. It fell down the hill, unfortunately. We gave it as much time as we could, maybe 10, 15 minutes before we were just too excited to go back down there. And of course, we still double-checked, made sure that the bear was properly down, down. But there was, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind when I took the shot and I saw the way he reacted to it. That's not, I've, I've seen that reaction so many times that I, I knew that was, that was that. And that bear didn't feel a thing, which is something about hunting that I want to bring up is that done correctly it's an incredibly humane way of getting meat compared to a lot of our systems today where the animal has the time to emotionally deal with the fact that something bad is about to happen i know i like to interject that as a farmer because when we talk about you know um ethical killing of animals for food you and i have processed poultry on the farm we've processed some livestock and watch the last turkey on slaughter day and compare that to your story of how you killed Chaco those animals that are you know towards the end of slaughter day especially they know what's coming they're stressed out they they can smell the blood it's just a terrible experience whereas hunting done correctly the animal shouldn't even know you're there you should take it down with a shot and that animal should die quickly. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's not a way to do livestock in a, an ethical, responsible way. I've certainly helped with that. I still help with that when there's, there's a lot of people in the community who ask me to come and help process an animal when it's, when it's time to do that. And I'm, I'm more than happy to do so. But I think that hunting offers a way to try and minimize some of that both that emotional and that physical suffering if you're gonna eat meat so we get down to the spare and i mentioned earlier that drayson is a 19 year old bodybuilder big dude can lift a lot of weight i am a farmer and i'm a i'm a wiry guy but i can lift a lot of weight for my size 
this bear was pinned up against a tree on a really hot day on a hillside slope that probably approached, I would say, a good 30 degree slope. Grayson and I couldn't move that bear. <laughs> Could not move that bear. So we ended up actually having to break him apart on the side of the, the hillside. And I remember distinctly that we were unable to move him at all until we had taken two whole quarters off of him and had gotten his his guts out. Well, in this, I, I also want to point out that Chaco hadn't had a chance to fatten up yet. He was lean. He was lean, yeah. He was lean. He, he, I mean, he was pure flipping muscle. I'm trying to remember how you phrased it, where you said, you know, I would, I would punch someone. I would... <laughs> I would fist fight somebody who said that that bear didn't weigh 300 pounds. I would argue that it weighed 400 pounds. And I wouldn't be shocked if somebody said, yeah, it weighed more than 500 pounds. Chaco was freaking massive. And for those of you who want the stats later on when I measured his skull out, he did measure at 20 and 5 sixteenths for the skull measurement, which is... Boone and Crockett territory, that's a legitimate trophy-sized bear. And his hide squared out at seven feet, which is a big, chunky black bear. With beautiful blonde shoulders. Yeah. So we're trying to break this bear up. And and this will also give you a an idea of how big he is. We have one of the bigger size Yeti coolers. A Yeti, I think it's a 210. It's a 210 or a 220, but it's a big, big cooler, chest cooler. And I remember that when Drayson tried to pack a quarter and maybe one other piece in there, that was all he could fit in there of that bear. And you can you can break down two whole deer and put two whole deer in that cooler, no problem. So just like one leg and a little bit more, and that, that cooler was tapped out for Chaco. But it was really funny because we were we were trying to break him up, and obviously it was super hot, and I got him in the, the middle of the day, and we we're trying to cool down the meat, and everything that should be fairly simple wasn't really going all that simply. <laughs> so we're breaking this animal down, and Drayson offers to pack out the first section, take that to the truck, and come back. And I remember he had kind of a crappy dime store pack, and he walked maybe 10 yards away from where we were doing the work on the bear and his pack just kind of like fell apart. <laughs> and if you've ever been really, really tired and you've had just a simple problem get thrown your way and your brain just can't process the problem, that's what happened to Drayson. I sat there and I watched him stare at his pack for a good two minutes before I was like, are you okay, man? And I think that reset his brain. <laughs> and he, he, he figured it out, picked up his pack and went off. And he was gone for a really long time, partly because he was trying to figure out how to fit everything into that cooler. Yeah, because you actually weren't um, distance-wise all that far from the truck. But when you thought about how overgrown the road was, the fact that Chaco, when he was shot, rolled back down this pretty steep embankment. Yep. 
everything about that was a little bit more complicated than it really needed to be. So while he was gone, I got circled by cougars. I He actually at one point borrowed my rifle when he came back because he had seen that cougar and wanted to try and go after it and fill his tag. Didn't manage to do it. But when he came back, we had a bear show up that was kind of getting closer and closer and closer to us, and it was too dark to do anything about that. Plus, you know, we didn't have cooler space or anything like that. We were just overwhelmed by this one bear. So... He gave me the the head and hide, and still to this day, that is the only picture, this crappy cell phone picture. It kills me that I wasn't there. <laughs> I know. I, I would have loved for you to have been there and got really good pictures of, of Chaco, because none of the pictures I took of like me next to the bear, Drayson next to the bear, none of those pictures really convey how big this bear, but I have one crummy cell phone pic that has Chaco's head. Because you've got the hide with the head attached kind of on your backpack. Packed up, rolled up. That one does convey how big and blocky Chaco was. And so we walked out, and I remember thinking, well, this bear's not going to come up to me now because I'm carrying the king of the mountain off this hill. And because we watched, we watched this 300-pound bear see Chaco earlier in the day and go, I want none. I want none of that, which was really cool. And I remember bringing that that back home, just expecting expecting you to kind of feel like I had failed because I had done it. I had that was like the the status quo failure. <laughs> yeah. So it was really surprising to come back home and say, "Hey, I, I got this. Check this out," and to open that cooler and to see your reaction seeing that thing. I Yeah, disbelief, uh, joy, surprise. <laughs> excitement. But I remember that we had had a house guest over, one of our good friends of the family, and he got roped into helping butcher this bear. And one of the things that struck me and will always kind of stay with me from that whole experience was the sense of community I had while we were processing this animal and and turning him into what was going to be food that would feed us for the next two years really and we you know we shared it with friends and family anyone who was interested in hunting it wasn't just about filling our freezer it was about giving us something to share and enjoy with others. Yeah, and a big reason why I wanted to share that is because of the the feelings I was struck with when we were when we were butchering the animal is that sense of community. I couldn't have got that bear alone. I had such a huge support crew of people who gave me advice either because I read what they decided to take the time to write down. I had somebody who actually took the time to take me out and teach me where to do things. I had people who helped me over time teach me how to shoot well, even when I was super young. There were so many details of realizing you, you spend a lot of time thinking about hunting as a self-sufficient activity because at the end of the day, you're out there and you're, you're doing it. But that day, it struck me as a community activity because there's 
a thousand things that if somebody hadn't helped me out, I wouldn't have gotten that done. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to process the animal at the end of the day. I was super overwhelmed by that. And, and that's coming from somebody who's, even at that point, I hadn't been hunting a long time, but I had taken apart a lot of animals, and I was good at it. I, Choco just was more than I can handle. Bears are put together differently. They're tough. So, But delicious. But absolutely delicious. And, and for the record, that is some of the best meat. I've ever had coming from a game animal or just an animal in yeah. general. Bear meat, I would describe as the only meat out there that you could feed to a guest and not say that it was a game meat and they wouldn't realize it. It is a good substitute for beef or pork, depending on how you prep it. And depending on the diet of the bear, because there is some truth to the fact that a bear that's been eating a lot of fish or a lot of carrion probably won't taste as good as Chaco, who'd been eating acorns and blackberries. Yeah, he was pounding acorns and blackberries pretty, pretty well. I mean, just again, some of the best meat on the planet. But yeah, that's kind of the story of Chaco. Well, and, and I think it's also good to talk about how even though you managed to finally harvest this black bear to help kind of face the the monster from that foggy night and overcome some of that trauma, that actually inspired a deeper love of bears from that experience and a desire to fight to conserve them and to make sure that they have habitat and numbers to continue into the future. And when we moved to Northeast Washington State, you've been... Uh, from pretty early on, a, a big supporter of, you know, intelligent wildlife management of the ability to continue to hunt bears sustainably. Yeah, no, it, it was it was funny. I remember telling my mother uh, about the fact that I had gotten a bear, and she kind of had this whole thing about, well, now that you're, now that you got your bear, are you done with that sort of thing? Is this a one-time deal? Because mother's worry and i i remember responding to her hell i'm doing this for the rest of my life this is too important and i remember thinking to myself not only will i try to hunt bears for the rest of my life i would fight with my dying breath to protect the habitat that they inhabit to make sure that bears are around for the next generation and beyond because it's just it's too important and I think that's something I I did achieve my goal I wanted to fall in love with bears again and hunting them brought me to that and it's really difficult to explain that to a non-hunter I think all too often hunters do that whole well you'd have to be a hunter to understand because they're very complex emotions that are involved with it but I think we can't really fall on that crutch anymore because it's it's a good way of just being like, oh, you'll never understand. And it just it's it's kind of a elitist thing to say that we need to start avoiding. But I think we can certainly admit that it's difficult to explain to somebody how you can absolutely fall in love with a species and the niche that it 
fills and what it does within its ecosystem. You can fall in love with that and want to protect that while also wanting to occasionally hunt the individual. That's a complex set of emotions that we need to be better about conveying as a whole if we're going to improve our public perception as hunters to the general public who's never dealt with that level of dichotomy. I think that's a good note to end on. I agree. Well, thank you very much for hanging out with us and letting me tell you the story of why hunting is so important to me and why I am fighting to protect it. Until next time. Hopefully we'll get a bear soon for me. <laughs> yeah, I really want to I really want to tell your success story at some point in the near future.